from St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. In just over one week, Missouri lawmakers will gather in Jefferson City for a special session addressing tax cuts and tax credits. Governor Mike Parson wants to pass a bill containing both an income tax cut and agricultural tax credit programs, two issues that the legislature did pass bills on, but Parson wanted them to be better. On this episode of Politically Speaking, Republican Senator Lincoln Huff joins the show to talk about the special session, including whether the state can afford another income tax cut. Huff also talked about the recent August 2nd primary, where he and five other Republican and colleagues faced primary challengers and how that may further impact the dynamic of the Senate. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, State House and Politics reporter Sarah Kellogg. Joining me in studio in St. Louis is my co-host, St. Louis Public Radio's political correspondent. Jason Rosenbaum. And our guest today joining us via Zoom. He is the Republican senator representing the 30th district in the Missouri Senate, which includes part of Green County, including Springfield, Missouri. Lincoln Huff. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you for joining us on the show, Senator. Uh, Before we get started, I'd love it if you just reminded our listeners a little bit about your district, where it covers, and who you represent. Sure. So I represent uh, essentially the city of Springfield down in southwest Missouri. Uh, my district's completely encompassed within Greene County. Uh, you know, it's it's primarily the the city limits as you know as these lines get redrawn. It's not exactly that, but pretty much it's the city of Springfield. So you are currently in the middle of your re-election campaign. How has this cycle yeah. differed from when you first ran for Senate in 2018? Uh, so in, in 2018, let's see, it wasn't 125 degrees every day all summer <laughs> long when you were out campaigning. I mean, this, this you know, I'll, I'll tell you guys, this has been a, a long and hot summer. So the fact that I think it's, you know, most of this week is going to be down in the 80s. It feels like, you know, a nice, cool climate to be out meeting with voters and doing, you know, doing the things that we're always doing on these campaigns. The primary, you know, th- these primaries have gotten different through the years. Uh, you know, when I first ran for the house back in 2010 uh i felt like there honestly guys there had to be a a little bit of honesty and a little bit of truth in what was being said and i feel like uh what we saw around around this state in i mean half a dozen races that i watched pretty closely mine included was uh was a little bit of liberty taken with uh how things were you know explained to voters so I think that, you know, that is that's frustrated a lot of uh, our colleagues. I haven't talked to a whole lot of members in the House, but I know uh, the folks in the Senate that were that were, you know, in these primaries up until a few weeks ago felt a little frustrated at the way the process had worked. You faced a primary opponent in Angela Romine. What was your strategy like going into this primary? What were you hearing from voters? Yeah, I've never uh, I'm probably not the typical candidate here because I've never run a race against an opponent. I run I run races based on uh, what I've been doing while I've been in Jeff City and the, the things that I feel like are important to folks back home that we've been successful in. We've got, I think we have a, a good track record in the last four years that I've been in the Senate. And that's, 
essentially, guys, that's what I ran on, and uh, I got reelected by I think fifty six percent of the vote, something like that. Which, you know, it's people are people are free to run for office, and I always say, you know, if, if you want to get involved, go run for office. And uh, and and my opponent was on city council and uh, had a little bit of name ID and had some you know financial backing in the community and from other parts of the state. So we didn't take anything for granted, but at the same time. Uh, I've run a few of these races down here the past several years and uh, have a pretty decent decent track record. You were one of six Republicans who faced primary challenges this election cycle. And with one of the incumbent senators, Senator Bill White, losing to a more, I don't know if we want to call her more conservative challenger because Bill White's mm-hmm. pretty conservative himself. Uh, but why do you think that there were so many challenges of Republican incumbents this year? Well, some of it, quite frankly, was due to recruitment from some folks uh, that wanted to see, you know, what what I guess they used to call the conservative caucus grow in numbers. Uh, I mean, I know uh, a few of my colleagues uh, were were point blank told that their opponents were recruited by folks around Jeff City who were trying to add to that caucus's number. Now, the interesting thing now is we have, you know, I guess they have disbanded or at least they've signed a letter of intent to disband. And, and maybe things will get better. I think the proof will be when we when we go into special session and see how things come together and, and whether or not we can actually you know work together or not. But uh, politics is a different animal right now, guys. I mean, it, it's more it seems more mean spirited. It seems more, uh, in my opinion, unhealthy for our communities and for our state and for our country. And you know, the thing that I just kept I kept pounding in uh, as we as we worked across the district and helped other candidates around the state was we get more done when we work together. It's it's just a fact. I mean, you can you can go up there and you can want to fight and you can want to stop everything and you can say it's my way or no way. But that's not how, in my opinion, governing, truly governing should work. You should try to work with one another and come up with the best outcome you can, because I believe at the end of the day, we all want to see this state succeed. So it should be noted that your election cycle is not done. You're facing Democrat Raymond Lampert in the general election. And and this is an unusual district. Like this district is not super Republican. Um, I think that generally Jefferson City observers think that you're the favorite. But I mean, I don't know if you really want to take it for granted when in 2026, this could be like the most competitive Senate district in the state. So with that as a backdrop, like how are you approaching the general election? Yeah, so we've, uh, like I said, Jason, we've got we have we have a, a good crew on the ground. We've got good volunteers. We've got good staff. Uh, we've you know essentially run in and around the Springfield district for oh you know five election cycles if you count you know uh, my time in the House and then I was on the county commission for a few years, uh, which had the eastern half of Greene County, so half of the city of Springfield, and then all of the county on the eastern side, and then, you know, four years in the Senate. I think I think if you're doing a good job, I think people notice that, and I think they recognize that. And, you know, we're we're working every day. I mean, we really are. We're out in the community every day. We're, we're meeting with different groups. As soon as I finish up this interview with you guys, I've got to go talk to a couple of uh, a couple of different groups around town that'll you know wrap up my day. But no, you're exactly right. You take nothing for granted. I think a lot of people uh, think of Southwest Missouri as this just bastion of Republican 
politics and it's a red stronghold. And the city of Springfield, I mean, my district is about a, you know, 51, 49, or maybe a 50.5 Republican district. If you, we actually pulled the numbers uh, right after redistricting when the map was actually finalized. And I believe Trump only won this Senate district by a little over a point. Hmm. You know, when, when he won the state by 18, he won this specific district. If you do precinct by precinct by a little over one point. So it's not, you know, it's not a, it's not a slam dunk. We'll take nothing for granted and we'll run, we'll run a good race. Moving on to other election discussion. What is your take on the upcoming U.S. Senate election? Do you believe that Attorney General Eric Schmidt has an easy path to election? Why or why not? I don't think anything's ever easy, especially when you're, when you're at that level. I think, I think Eric has shown that he's a hard worker, obviously. Uh, When you come through a primary the way that he did and you work as hard as he did and uh, get around and meet as many people as he did. Uh, I think I think that shows I think that shows people that you're willing to to put the work in, not just to the campaign, but then into the job. So uh, I'm sure that uh, that he's not taking anything for granted. I saw him at the state fair uh, last week or the week before, and you know he was he was there and he was there all day and he was shaking hands and you know introducing himself around and saying hi to people and doing all the things that he needs to do. So uh, I imagine he'll be in good shape, but I'm sure that he will run hard all the way through November. What are your thoughts on Trudy Bush Valentine? Mm-hmm. I know that you're a Republican, but I'd be interested to hear how you think she is going to fare, because if she does a lot better than expected, it could have a trickle down effect on state legislative races like yourself. Yeah. And that's what I mean, that's that's part of why we have the campaign structure that we have in place, Jason. I mean, uh, you 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 are like it or not, um, you know, kind of at the will of the voters that see the candidates that are, you know, at the top of the ticket that then trickle down. You know, those those votes sometimes do trickle down in our districts, you know, both the Senate and the House districts. So I don't know how much work uh, she has put into Springfield. I think she's been here a time or two. But, um, you know, again, I think I think when when we're running on the track record of uh, the work that we've done for the last several years in Jeff City, I feel good about uh, how November is going to turn out. There was some breaking news yesterday. We're recording this on Wednesday, August 23rd, 24th, 24th. I, I have lost track so of time. Close. I, was, I have lost track of time. That's what having three small children will do. Uh, John Wood, who was running as an independent, dropped out of the U- U.S. Senate race and basically said he had no path after Schmidt uh, won that contest. What did you make of his candidacy? Because I think I've said pretty publicly I was skeptical if an independent candidate could do very much in a statewide race. But I believe like one of my reporter friends mentioned that $3.6 million was spent on his behalf in two months. So it was hard mm-hmm. not to take that seriously. But I also heard from like Republicans that once Schmidt won, he was going to be a non-factor. Like, what was kind of mm-hmm. your view of his candidacy? Well, I, my, my view of the candidacy from the very beginning was that uh, there is a growing segment of the population that doesn't appreciate the polarization that you've seen within you know within politics i mean you know when when things get i think i mentioned it earlier but when things get as mean-spirited as they are the thing that i hear and our volunteers hear you know on the doors when we're out in neighborhoods people are people are frustrated with 
uh, with politicians in general that just seem to be hurling rocks at one another all the time and not actually focusing on things that matter to the folks back at home. So I think, I mean, I think, uh, you know, Wood's candidacy was a reflection of that. Now, I think there was a lot of people that thought uh, he would be a viable option if, you know, the former governor, Greitens, had somehow uh, ended up getting the Republican nomination. But I think when that didn't happen and you saw a strong candidate in Eric Schmidt, uh, Mr. Wood probably just looked at it. And, and I mean, I've been told the polling, the polling numbers weren't great for him. And, and he probably just took a look at it and said, I don't see I don't see how this works. There's been some conjecture that the state's trigger law that banned most abortions could spark a backlash, even among voters who feel abortion is morally wrong. What do you think about that? Well, I think what you saw in uh, Kansas recently uh, is an indicator that you can take a, you know, a, a, a state that you, you think is going to go one way or, you know, conventional wisdom would say one thing and then they do something else. So I think this is, you know, this is one of those issues that is that is very real to people and, and near and dear to their hearts. And, and I, I think it is I think it's hard to handicap how that will actually affect one voter turnout and two then. Uh, you know, how those folks vote when they do show up. Uh, if there is backlash at the polls, would it compel Republican lawmakers to relook at that law and perhaps make exceptions for people that become pregnant because of rape or incest? Well, I think it's a conversation uh, worth having. I think, you know, I think it was a few years ago that uh, that, that, that law went into effect and it was on the floor. And, and I know I don't feel I mean, I know there was I know there was lengthy conversation about it, but at the end of the day, I don't remember an awful lot of conversation in that vein, Jason. So I yeah. could see I mean, I could see that conversation coming back for sure. One of the interesting things about this election cycle is that there seems to be only one state Senate race that's going to be targeted by the political parties, and that's the 24th district in St. Louis County where Democrat Tracy McCreary is running against Republican George Haruza. Um, how do you think that dynamic will affect like other races like yours? If like all the money and the attention is going to that, could it mean that like people like you don't have as much to worry about? Or is that just looking at it too myopically? Well, I think I think there's a couple of factors here. One uh, being the primaries that we just went through, and I have not, I'll admit, I've not totaled up the amount of money that Republicans spent fighting amongst ourselves. I mean, I would venture it in, you know, in the several million dollar ranges, right? Uh, I know, you know, my race down here, we spent probably $400,000 on a primary. And, and I guess my point, the, the start of the point here is that when when we as Republicans are fighting against one another in August, we flat don't have the resources to be competitive in a number of other seats. So then you have to be more targeted because your resources are limited. Uh, had we not gone through that exercise in August, perhaps there would have been, you know, there would have been a couple of other seats that we would have been looking at. Um, the other the other part of it is, I think, uh, I mean, you know, you've got. Senator Searpoy on the ballot up, you know, around Kansas City. You've got uh, Senator Brown in the kind of the Rolla area. You've got Senator Burnsketter. And, you know, these guys are either unopposed in the general or in very safe districts. Uh, my seat's one of those, like I mentioned before, that's about as close to a 
Republican Democrat seat that you have in the state. However, the work that we've done over the past, not just year in this last campaign, but the last four years in, in and around the community, I think, um, you know, lead, lead the parties to believe that, you know, things are, things are in a good place, at least for, you know, for my race down here. And, you know, when you have a finite amount of resources, you're going to focus them on the, the, you know, maybe the pickup seat that you might be able to, to win. And right now that's the 24th. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. And we're back on Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio's State House and Politics reporter, Sarah Kellogg. Joining me is my co-host, Jason Rosenbaum, political correspondent for St. Louis Public Radio. And our guest today is Republican Senator Lincoln Huff, who represents the 30th district, which includes part of Greene County, mainly Springfield. So let's get back into it. Uh, I have a lot of questions to ask you about this special session. Uh, I think my first one is just what are your initial thoughts about Governor Mike Parson's request to pass both agricultural tax credit programs and an income tax cut? Well, I mean, I guess I guess the very first thing I would say is that the legislature did pass an ag bill, um, a comprehensive ag tax credit bill last year. Um, I know Jason Bean, uh, Senator Bean from the Boot Heel, uh, worked on that, negotiated that with, you know, with, with our colleagues and it took a lot of time and a lot of work. And, uh, it was, it was too bad that, that the governor ended up vetoing that, but we are where we are there. The other, the, the tax cut portion of it, uh, you know, we had, we had floated around some tax cut ideas in our chamber. I think ultimately, uh, representative Cody Smith from the Joplin, the Osho area, who's the house budget chairman, uh, had his, I think it was about a $500 tax rebate bill that did get done. So on the one hand, I almost feel like we did both of these things already. And then perhaps the governor just, uh, you know, maybe saw that he he wanted a, you know, a different ag package and a different sort of tax cut. And so here we are, you know, the, you have a lot of questions about special session. I have a lot of questions about special session. (laughs) So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how this goes, but I've been in contact with our Senate leadership, House leadership uh, over the past several weeks, the governor's office. And uh, I mean, I would I mean, we'll we'll go through your questions, but I would say right now, uh, I, I hope I have some decent answers for you, but I think there's still a lot of things to be sorted out. Yeah. So, so you have, have you talked with Governor Parson about this? And if so, what has he said about the topic to to senators? Yeah, I've talked to him several times, uh, you know, both in person and on the phone and uh, in Jeff City and back here, you know, in Southwest Missouri. So we've, we've talked several times. Um, you know, he wants he wants a a essentially a comprehensive tax credit uh, bill for some ag programs uh, and a little longer time frame than what we passed back in the regular session. I think we passed uh, the MASBIT tax credit specifically with a two year sunset, and I think he wants a minimum of a six year sunset. That's one of the issues. Uh, the the tax cut is probably the more difficult, and not not saying that the ag portion of the bill is some sort of a slam dunk, easy to do kind of thing, because you know everyone has their own opinion about how this works, and I know a lot of people worked really hard during regular session to get that thing to a place where we got it passed. But um, you know when you start talking about cutting taxes, we have a lot of different ideas in our chamber based on who you talk to and the house has a lot of different ideas about what they want to do so that is going to be a that's going to be a complicated negotiation i would say 
let's talk first about the ag tax credits and then we'll go to the tax cut. So, you know, basically Parson said, yeah, he vetoed this bill because he wanted a six-year sunset as opposed to a two-year. I've heard the reason why the sunset ended up being two years is that was what the Senate would agree to without protesting. Do you think six years is a heavy lift to get across the finish line? I think it's a heavy lift when you're just a few months out of agreements that were made between senators. Uh, you know, full disclosure here, I wasn't involved in all the meetings on uh, on the ag tax credits, which it's always kind of ironic to me. I actually raise cattle, but I mean, I don't use tax credits on you know, on our on our family beef operation. But uh, I, you know, I am one of the ag guys that's actually in the chairman or in the chamber. So um, so I think it's I think it becomes difficult when. You just went through a negotiation with the members in my chamber, and now you're asking them to go back and redo it. So I think that that right there adds a level of complexity to what we have before us. You know, if passed, will the ad credits, you know, actually help small farmer, farmers? And I don't mean family farms because a lot of those are corporations held by a family. How will these ad credits help farmers growing specialty crops on land of less than 200 acres sure. or livestock producers that may only have 50 head of cattle? Right. So... I, my, my overall opinion is anytime we do something for the ag community, it's good for anyone who is involved in this industry, okay? Even if it's a crushing facility in, a, in the soybean world that, you know, the, the neighbor that I have, you know, on the southeast side of Greene County that only has 300 acres of soybeans, it's still those, those types of investments and then those added values in his product make a difference to him and his bottom line. So I believe anything we can do, uh, even if it's not a direct correlation to, I mean, you know, a, a very small, say, 50 head cattle operation or the, you know, the person who has, you know, 200 sows or something like that. But I think anytime we're making investments in that industry, it's good for the whole industry. On the matter of the tax cut, do you think that this is going to be a policy where you'll see some collaboration with Senate Democrats, or do you think this is going to be mainly a Republican lift or debate? Well, um, in the Senate, I think you 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 really got to collaborate with everyone. Um, it, it's we don't have the option to go in and say, "Here is the bill. We're not taking any." you know, amendments, we're not changing anything. You could try that for a while. And I imagine after some number of hours of people having their own opinions and wanting to have the conversation about it, we would then come back to the drawing board, right? Come back to the negotiating table and say, what do we need to do to make this work? So, so uh, you know, I I believe that, that the Senate, you know, Republicans and Democrats both uh, have a duty to collaborate on not just tax cuts, or, but you know all the legislation that we move through that chamber. I've just I've never believed that a, a you know one side should just be able to run over the top of someone else and say this is what we're doing. You're just going to have to get over it. I just don't think that makes for good policy. So you know, in passing the uh, the not one-time non-refundable tax credit, which we referred to earlier, you know, Senate Democrats spoke in favor of that. Do you think that a permanent tax cut is going to take more convincing than that one-time tax credit that the legislature did pass before Parson vetoed it? Yeah, I would say so because uh, you know what we look at is we look, we look at the long. I look at the long-term implications of the decisions that we make. Okay. It, it's easy to say we should cut taxes right now because I think as of this morning, uh, we had $4.3 billion worth of general revenue in the bank. Okay. 
it's easy to say, look at all the money we have right now, we should cut taxes. But what happens when this economy corrects, when it slows down, when our tax receipts are stagnant or even in the red? Then what do we do? What happens when we don't have you know, billions of dollars of federal money flowing into this state that quite frankly, we've backed general revenue out of a number of lines and then saved our general revenue. That's why we have a balance. We ended, we ended the fiscal year with almost $5 billion in the bank, okay? Sounds like a great time to make long-lasting tax cuts. Hmm. But my concern is what do you do three, four, 10 years down the road when none of us are there anymore? And someone is left trying to decide, trying to make, trying to make decisions about investments that are made in the state and our education and our infrastructure and our workforce. And they don't have the, they don't have the, the capital to do it. They don't have the money to do it. Yeah. That's interesting that you mentioned that because the same day that Parson announced his framework for the special session and the tax cut, the Missouri Budget Project, which admittingly is a group that's usually not a fan of Republican taxing priorities, uh, released a statement criticizing the tax cut, saying that the recent influx of temporary federal dollars is what caused Missouri to have this much of a surplus. Uh, do you agree with this? And if you drop the tax rate to 4.8% permanently, like what happens when sure. that, that takes up most of the surplus? Right. So a couple of things there. Uh, one, the, the influx of federal money absolutely has a lot to do with the bottom line, you know, like I said, as of today, $4.3 billion that we have in the bank. The other portion of why we have so much money in the bank is just the, the economy, you know, year over year from last year to this year, month by month, has been growing by double digits. And you can, you know, you can point to whatever indicator you want, but there's been there has been an influx of money into people's pockets from the federal government that then the majority of people go out and spend. And then those tax dollars, those sales tax dollars are collected by the state. And we see our sales tax receipts, I mean, honestly, guys, go through the roof. But it's short-lived. It's it's not something that's gonna perpetuate year after year after year because it can't. The, government, the federal government can't just keep directly sending all this money to individuals and to businesses and to municipalities. I mean, you see it in the construction industry right now where uh, you know people are building things as fast as they can because there's all this federal money floating around. So it's, you know, the, the one-time money is definitely a factor in that. Yeah. In that same vein, how do you make sure that whatever tax cut gets passed doesn't make it difficult to fund vital services going forward? Well, my goal will be to make sure that whatever type of tax cut that we try to move through both chambers is a responsible tax cut, not something that is going to handcuff uh, this state for future legislatures. You know, we can't go through the exercise that Kansas went through because we do have the Hancock Amendment in our Constitution, and we cannot just go back and raise revenues when things fall apart because we cut taxes to an unsustainable rate. 
So uh, moving on to the category that I have just dubbed as Legislature 2023 Vibes. So uh, kind of assuming that you are uh, reelected in November, uh, I just want to talk about the Senate itself. So the Conservative Caucus, as you mentioned, announced that it is disbanding, extending an olive branch to non-members of the caucus in the hopes to run under one Republican banner. What do you think about this approach? Well, I think I mentioned it before. Um, The proof will be in you know, in what happens moving forward. If, you know, if there's an olive branch that is extended, but then also has, you know, kind of a veiled threat that is, if we don't get the leadership that we want, all bets are off, then we're kind of back to where we were. Um, you know, I, I, I try to take people at their word when they say we want to work together. And, you know, I've got a track record, you know, of, of working with a number of these guys, um, you know, Senator Hoskins and I didn't agree on one of the governor's priority last year, which was that fast track uh, college education bill. And, you know, Senator Hoskins wanted to make some changes and we worked through it and we put his changes in the bill. I think he ultimately still voted against the bill, which is always kind of frustrating for me. But uh, but other than that, I mean, that's that to me, that's how the process is supposed to work. You're supposed to you know, you can you can butt heads and you can fight about what you think the best plan is and the best course of action. But at the end of the day, like I said before, I believe that all of us want the best for this state. It's just a matter of how do we get there? So I'm you know, I'm willing to work with anyone uh, that that comes with, you know, with the ability to really negotiate. Uh, this is going to be a really blunt inside baseball question, but do you think the conservative caucus disbanded because they don't have enough members to elect one of their caucus members to a major leadership position like Senate pro tem? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, I I don't know what the motivation there is. Honestly, I I hope that their motivation is pure that, you know, they, they saw how divisive these primaries were and they said, maybe this isn't good for us moving forward. But uh, I can tell you, there's there are there are more than some hurt feelings in the caucus about the way these primaries were handled and the things that were said about uh, about sitting members, and and I think you know we've we've got some fences to mend, and I don't think just signing a letter saying hey we're back on the team is probably going to get that done. Yeah, the caucus said that recent election results on August second showed that there was electorate support for their positions and candidates that kind of have more of the conservative caucus positions, which led to this dissolution. Do you buy that? Well, I mean, I guess I guess my my response to that would be if, you know, if that was really the case, then why would you disband your quote unquote organization? If things are trending your way, don't you want to keep your group intact and keep growing it? That's certainly a good question. I think that also, too, like some of the people that won that are going to purportedly be members of the conservative caucus. So that like Ben Brown, Mary Elizabeth Coleman, Nick Schroer, assuming they all win their general elections. Right. Like, I don't know. We had Ben Brown on the podcast. He didn't really seem like he wants to, like, throw bombs all day. He wants to be more like a Andrew Koenig in the Senate, who is part of the Mm -hmm. conservative caucus, but seems to actually want to do stuff. And then those two other people I mentioned have pretty decent track records of passing things in the House. So I'm just not really sure that even if they had, quote unquote, joined the conservative caucus, that really would have meant anything if their goals were that they want to actually pass things and not just 
filibuster things all the time. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'll be honest. I'm excited about uh, the incoming class of freshmen that we have because I think I think just just like what you mentioned. I mean, uh, you got to remember Representative Shore uh, several years ago was uh, one of the key components to helping us pass. The, I mean, we, we dubbed it the GM bill, but essentially it was, you know, the governor's entire economic development package all wrapped up into one. And Nick was one of our biggest advocates. I think he had the amendment uh, in the House chamber to help get that thing done. So, like, he, I mean, I've worked directly with him. He's got a track record of getting things done. Mary Elizabeth Coleman's the same way. Uh, I don't know Ben Brown, but uh, from what I've been told, he, he, he leans the way of what you're saying. You, you know, he wants to wants to be part of the solutions in the state, not the problem. So you touched on this a little bit. But how do you feel that leadership elections are, are going to go in the fall? Uh, you know, I don't know. It's you know, it's it's going to depend on who actually sticks, you know, sticks to what they're doing. I think, you know, I think Senator Rowden is obviously in a good place. Uh, Caleb has shown, in my opinion, that he's, you know, a good and and workable guy for the Senate. I think he believes in what the Senate is and tries to, you know, tries to get other members priorities done, which is uh, a complicated, <laughs> complicated job when you're dealing with the chamber that we have. Uh, so I think he's probably in good shape. And then as far as, you know, floor leader, and then, you know, kind of all the all the if you want to call them down ballot races, uh, we're just gonna have to see in my opinion, who who sticks in there and, and puts the legwork in and, you know, gets those commitments from colleagues. It's kind of uh, nice not to be running for leadership. I know you're you're <laughs> <Put it down. laughs> Yeah, you're planning on you I mean you were vice chairman of appropriations. Dan Hageman is right. ending his illustrious legislative career. Um yes. if, if you are budget chair, what is kind of going to be your vision for how you run that committee and and how do you expect to interact with the house given that like mm-hmm. that's often like the biggest conflict yeah. in May? Well, Cody and I have, we've got a good working relationship. We talk uh, fairly routinely. Uh, Dean Flocker over there, who you know, will be the speaker, he and I talk all the time. Uh, we've got, I've got a good relationship with both of those guys. And, uh, you know, assuming that I do step into that role, uh, you know, yeah, the four years serving as the vice chair with, with Senator Hageman, I think have, you know, have, have put me in a good place of understanding. We've got a good, we have a pretty incredible team, not just good, we have an incredible team downstairs in our budget, our Senate Probes office, uh, led by Adam Koningsfeld. I mean, he's just got, he's got top-notch people down there and we're, we're fortunate to have them. So priorities for me, you know, it's not going to be anything that's changed in my, uh, now 10 years in that building, but, uh, you know, investments in education and workforce and infrastructure, those are the things that I think, you know, you can, you can drive your economy literally on our roads, but if you don't have, if you don't have the workers to fill the jobs, I don't know how you recruit businesses. That's all the time we have. Thank you so much, Senator Huff, for joining us on the show. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can follow all of our coverage at stlpr.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Sarah K. Kellogg. That's two L's, two G's. Jason, where can people follow you on Twitter? Jay Rosenbaum. And then, Senator Huff, where can people find you on the Internet where you want to be found? Yeah, look me up on Twitter. Just it's Lincoln Lincoln Huff, and uh, I like to everybody's on Facebook. So check us out there too. All right, until next time. So long.